0: Today, almost everyone that attends a funeral does so in a car. We're familiar with hearses that we follow in our own vehicles, or sometimes limousines provided by funeral homes. But there was a time when this wasn't the norm, when rail travel was king. Today we examine how the rural cemetery movement and the shifting of cemeteries out of the city center to suburbs impacted the transportation industry. Today, we're talking mortuary railroads. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So this was another listener-requested topic, but it's one that I confess I had always intended on doing, because this is certainly one of those topics that I don't think a lot of people know about and was weirdly common and today is virtually unknown. Um... A word about me and railroads. Uh, I try to be pretty upfront about what I'm interested in, what I'm not. And I've, I've kind of kibitzed a little bit about how I'm not really a presidential scholar. I don't think that presidential history is that interesting. And I confess, in the world of history, I've always kind of been on the same page with railroads. Um, there are a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people who are fascinated by them. But without pigeonholing too badly, I tend to think of railroads as being a boy thing. Now I know that this is a very Western, very traditional view of gender, but girls aren't really encouraged to play with trains growing up. And uh, I definitely was a girly girl. I always have been, still am. I like perfume and makeup and dresses, and despite the fact that I spend a lot of time in cemeteries... I've never really been into railroads, um, though I know quite a few people who are, in all different kinds of aspects, and it's one of those things that weirdly, you'll start talking to a guy, even somebody who you would not think would be into railroads, and somehow they are. But I am also very open about the fact that when it comes to being an architectural historian, Now, I I find that the majority of people that I work with in the field, they like old houses. They like pretty houses. People tend, if they are into architecture, to be drawn to residential architecture. They love the bungalows and the Queen Anne's and things like that. You can bulldoze all of the pretty houses you want, in my opinion, because I am far more interested in utilitarian architecture. Give me a good asylum or sewage treatment plant any day over all the pretty houses in the world because I'm really into the engineering. I think public architecture is far more interesting because it is utilitarian. And often these buildings are magnificent and they are very both structurally and technology-based decades ahead of what's happening even in the private sector. Um, They're often self-sustaining there's a lot of planning and a lot of thought that goes into this type of public architecture. And cemeteries fall into that. All of these things are intended to improve everyday life, whether it's through sanitation, health, uh, all of these things. And it's also, to me, very interesting to see how these places change over time. Because many of them, they start off with what's groundbreaking technology, but within five or ten years, that has become outdated. And railroads are very much the same way that I have found are very unique in terms of understanding technology, in terms of working towards sort of a cross-cultural goal. Every aspect from freight to passenger service to what we're going to be talking about today is really intricate and really well thought out. And the thing is, like even as a historian today, I run across railroads all the time. Here in Georgia, railroads were definitely king, and they crisscrossed the state. The joke is, if there's not a cemetery or a railroad on your project, are you even in Georgia? And it's amazing that these companies, which were chartered close to 200 years ago now, most of them start in the 1830s, these companies laid out their bylaws and they planned all of their work so well that those policies are still law and they are still in place and they are still very active today in 2020. There's not many other industries that you can say that of. So the men who started railroads really were barons of not just industry, but of technology, of finance, really create something that's quite remarkable. Now, how does that translate to cemeteries? Well, I had this conversation the other night. Um, How successful would a lot of cemeteries have been without cemeteries? And this is a good question, and I think there's great research paper in it. I have seen presentations on individual mortuary railroads. There have been books written on individual mortuary railroads, But a comprehensive look at the trend in general, not yet. And I would be very interested to see if a scholar who knows something about both railroads and cemeteries were to take that on. I think it would be a fascinating work. Because it's something that, again, very underappreciated. So to start off the discussion, what is a mortuary railroad? And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a dedicated rail line, generally, including stations, including specific cars, and often a branch railroad that serves cemeteries. Now, all along the discussion of rural cemeteries, starting with Père Lachaise in Paris, going through Mount Auburn, all the way through to the turn of the century and beyond, we have discussed the idea that you wanted to get burials out of the city center for health reasons and also for reasons of space. However, we forget, unless you've been playing Oregon Trail recently, how difficult it was to travel even relatively short distances back then. Most of these places, even if they were only a mile or two outside the city, that was quite a journey. That was a full day's journey. So getting there, not just for the funeral, but to visit regularly Was going to be a challenge now you will recall also that these very quickly were going to become huge tourist attractions so accessibility was extremely important fortunately the heyday of rural cemeteries remember mount auburn is founded in 1831 guess what else starts being founded in the 1830s railroads so The two sort of scions of Victorian society in terms of utility, cemeteries and railroads, they almost perfectly coincide. So the development of rural cemeteries in many ways is going to be closely interconnected to the development of railways. Coincidence? I think not. Because again, they're trying to use technology in the smartest, cheapest, most cost-effective way to get the job done. This is going to be a slightly unusual episode. I know that this cemetery podcast focuses on American cemeteries, but there are a few challenges when it comes to talking about mortuary railroads in the United States. And the first is is that they are just not organized in the same fashion that they are other places. Secondly, in the United States, we don't have the same type of system in terms of organization and I'll I'll try to explain a little bit more about that as we get into it but bear with me it's a good story it's one you're definitely going to want to hear so let's start our story in England now London as you can imagine had always had a problem with burial space like Paris like any other large city so this story like any good cemetery story, starts with an epidemic. In this case, it's an epidemic of cholera, the old poop water situation. In 1848 and 1849, London experiences more than 14,000 deaths in a cholera epidemic. And the churchyards in London are overwhelmed. Now... London had already anticipated the fact that they were going to need more burial space. And so there was a movement first to create a ring of cemeteries sort of in the inner suburbs of London. The most famous of these by far is Highgate, which Highgate is located like in Hampstead in North London. This is where Karl Marx is buried. Michael Faraday, numerous famous Londoners. Generally regarded as one of the most beautiful cemeteries in the world. Now, in addition to Highgate, you have Abney Park, Kensal Green, which Kensal Green, I believe, was privately owned, whereas some of these others were city-owned. Brompton. You've probably seen Brompton in the movies. This is a very popular one. Um, it shows up in a lot of Victorian, like, Sherlock Holmesy type period pieces that you see on PBS and whatnot. Norwood. Nunhead, and lastly, Tower Hamlets. And these cemeteries were a great idea in theory, but what they did not anticipate was that populations would continue to grow, mortality rates wouldn't necessarily fall, and London would continue to grow. Remember, the Industrial Revolution causes metropolises to boom and they don't have places to put these people they have challenges with sanitation they have epidemics so what is the solution to this the solution is actually a really good one if it worked out the way that they planned so two gentlemen um sir richard braun and richard spry they come up with a solution That they are going to purchase land, which is cheap, close to London, but not dangerously close. So, close enough that it can be easily reached by people, but not close enough that it's going to cause disease. And thirdly, they are going to use this land to build a necropolis. And their solution to London's problem is that there will be three great cemeteries, starting with this one, built. One to the south, one to the east, one to the west. And this one, called Necropolis, which, if you recall, means city of the dead. Um, London Necropolis, or as it will eventually become popularly known as Brookwood Cemetery, is founded in the town of Woking, Surrey. Or roughly around there. It's actually about four miles from Woking. And... There's about 1,500 acres, and this is trash land. Um, It's very rocky soil, coarse, gravelly soil, not attractive for farming, not really good for anything else, so they get the land cheap, and 1,500 acres is a lot of land. When you consider, you know, some of the really big cemeteries, even here in the United States, are like 200 acres. 1,500 acres is a lot. Brookwood Cemetery will become the largest in the UK, one of the largest in the world. So what Braun figures out is that he sees that this land, this amount of acreage, could accommodate 5,830,500 graves in a single layer. Yeah, get your get your thinking caps out, because there's definitely some math going on here. That's assuming every single grave, one person per grave, single layer. But then he knows it's London, so there's going to be a lot of pauper burials, which at the time the practice was, was to place 10 burials in a single grave. Unfortunately, the law won't allow him to do this, but he's even assuming you know pauper graves are going to be smaller, they're going to be narrower, they're not going to have monuments, so you can cram a lot in. So he does the math and he assumes roughly 50,000 deaths per year in London and they're all going to go to Necropolis. That means it's going to take 350 years to fill just a single layer. If they dig them double or even triple deep, you could have the next thousand years worth of burials taken care of. In fact, he estimates that that acreage will eventually be able to hold... 28.5 28.5 million burials. Now, this is a very ambitious idea, but he proceeds with it. And he proceeds with it by forming what is called the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company in 1852. So they are formed. And it's a very popular move because in 1851, the Burial Act was passed in reaction to the cholera epidemic, which prohibited in-town burials. Now, we've seen this before. This is precisely what happens in San Francisco, and it leads to the formation of Coma. Like I said, a good epidemic is the beginning of every good cemetery story. So, Braun forms this company, and this is something that is really... I think today, would maybe not in England, because they definitely have more socialist leanings. It's complicated, because it is a company, it's a separate private company, but it's very closely tied in with the national rail system, and it's, it's definitely complicated. Their plan is that they are going to run daily trains, and these daily trains will accommodate both coffins and mourners. So what they are looking to do is almost a century before Hubert Eaton and Forest Lawn Memorial Park becomes a one-stop shop, they are looking to give you, maybe not soup to nuts, the funeral experience, but essentially that. So what they do is they establish a cemetery, first of all, that has two sections. This is a very English thing. So bear with me if you're not up on your... Religions and issues here because it is a little complicated. The southern part of the cemetery is Anglican or Church of England, exclusively for those burials. The northern part is what is known as the nonconformist section. This is the way commonly most English or English speaking countries that were part of the Commonwealth were laid out. So, Australia, Canada. Even, you know, things in Africa and India whatnot. This is how they separated their cemeteries. So Anglican in the South and then nonconformist. And nonconformist is Roman Catholic, Jewish. Um, Parsi, which Parsi, very common. um, Probably the most famous Parsi individual that you probably would know would be Freddie Mercury. Um, uh, Zoroastrianism. Um, Let's see what else. Presbyterian. Methodist which was generally known as Wesleyan after its founder, John Wesley. All of these are considered nonconformists. If you were anything other than Church of England, you're going to be buried in the nonconformist section. So that's the first distinction. The second distinction is going to be by social class. So there are first, second, and third class burials. Anybody who's ever seen Titanic knows that first, second, and third class have very different ways that they are treated now this ties closely with railroads because railroads are the same way if you have ever seen any kind of film that shows old-fashioned railroad cars where they have individual compartments those are first class whereas second class they generally would be in an open train car with seats something similar to what we see today on like commuter rails and then third class boy it depended on which railroad you were riding but could be anything Smaller seats, closer together. So the idea was that the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company, you went to them and you purchased a funeral. And that funeral was based on what you could afford. And that funeral included transportation to and from London for mourners, and a one way ticket for the deceased. So you would depart from the London Necropolis Railroad Station, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. You would take the roughly 23 mile journey to Surrey, where you would disembark at one of the two railroad stations within the cemetery the North Station, again serving the nonconformist section, and the South Station serving the Anglican section. You had an option. You could have a committal service in one of the chapels, which there were two chapels there as well, one at each station, or a graveside committal service, depending on what your religious practices were and whether or not you had already had some sort of service in London. Then obviously the deceased would remain at Brookwood and the rest of you would take the train back. Now, depending on how much you could spend the first class service was essentially your full service. It would be the equivalent of about 250 pounds today. I didn't want to waste your time by giving you, you know, 1840s amounts of money. Um, and this included, you know, the burial, committal, treatment in like the best waiting rooms, the best toilets, all of those things. And eventually, It would allow for the erection of a permanent monument of your choice. The second class funeral was about the equivalent of modern 95 pounds. Slightly less in terms of like the luxury of your accommodations. And when you got there, you got your permanent burial spot, but you were not guaranteed a monument. It was an additional $47 or excuse me, 47 pounds if you wanted a permanent monument. So this was the one for the upwardly mobile middle class. And then lastly, third class or pauper burials were burials where the family did not pay. These were essentially, I don't want to call them potter's fields because they're not really potter's fields in the truest sense of the word, but the parish, whatever parish you lived in, was paying for your burial because your family could not afford it. Um, So, straight-up burial, transportation and burial was the modern equivalent of about nine pounds, so probably about the same as a pint of beer today. You could not erect a permanent monument unless, for some reason, the family could raise the additional 47 pounds, which, as you can imagine, for a family that can't afford the nine pounds to bury you, raising an additional 47 just to put a monument on it is virtually impossible. Now, the interesting thing is, is the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company. Because they owned the means of production, meaning that they owned the railroad. And I'm going to talk extensively about that. They were able to keep fares relatively cheap. In fact, travel to Woking, which was, you know, the nearest town in Surrey on regular trains was far more expensive than if you rode the Mortuary Railroad. So it was an attractive option because it encouraged people to go out to the cemetery because it was a cheaper fare and they could do it rather economically. Plus, the journey was considered to be very picturesque. This is a very pretty part of England. And the way that the trains left, they didn't, they kind of went straight out across a bridge and out of London. It was considered very pretty, very peaceful, very soothing. Definitely in keeping with what we think of as the rural cemetery movement, even though it's not exactly the same in England, but definitely that whole idea of like a beautiful pastoral setting was definitely a part of this. So for the roughly 85 years that this is in operation, fares other than, you know, just regular inflation really don't deviate that much. And this is one of the reasons that it does stay in business. So, operations there start November 7th, 1854. The first burials happen about a week later, on November 13th, and um, it is the stillborn twins of a Mr. and Mrs. Hoare, H-O-R-E, from London. That begins the whole thing. Now... As I said, there is definitely a dream that this is going to be very popular, that everybody is going to want to be involved in this. Um, And I will say that the London Necropolis National Mausoleum Company, if nothing else, they knew how to sell an idea. I'm telling you, if you have been holding out and you're looking for your next cemetery tattoo, the... The London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company logo, killer. The outside circle is the Ouroboros, the, the snake devouring its own tail. There's a skull and an hourglass in the center. It, it is a gr- I will definitely post a picture of it. It's fantastic. Um, their motto was uh, Mortuis Gies Vivi Salus, um, which. It's interesting because I saw a lot of battles on the internet about the Latin translation. Um, somebody used to teach Latin. Um, essentially, it, it's talking about peace for the dead, health for the living, or health or well being for the living, which makes sense when you think about the railroad and what they were pushing. The idea that they were providing a peaceful repose for the dead, but also comfort. Nice accommodations, safe transportation for those who are left behind for the mourners. Huge. It's a great sell. So on both ends you have terminals which are owned by the London Acropolis and National Mausoleum Company. Um, on the end in the city you're going to have a far more utilitarian center, and I'm going to talk quite a bit about this. Um, so, London Necropolis is located right next to Waterloo Station, so this is as centrally located in London, right on the Thames, as you can be. Now, there are two stations. The first, constructed in 1854, the same year as the cemetery, which will run until 1902, and The whole idea of placing it where it was, where it was centrally located, was that it was easy to get bodies there. You could either send them by barge or boat or whatever down the Thames, straight to the Waterloo Steps where they could be carried up. Or if they were coming by a cart from somewhere, there are three bridges that all convene right there. It's super centrally located. This makes it cost-effective. Secondly... You're right next to other major rail lines, which is beneficial because you have the room to store things. You already have kind of a bustling transportation-oriented area. There is some pushback. Because part of the planning of the Necropolis Station in London is the fact that you're going to have a lot of bodies buried there. Well, not buried, but stored there. So... On Westminster Bridge Road, that's where the second one will be built. You're still in the same neighborhood. But this first one, really prime real estate. And that's one of the reasons it'll be gone later on. So this is a really modern building. And one that they put quite a bit of thought into designing. Um, the first thing that they do is they put in steam-powered hydraulic lifts. That way it's easy to move bodies secondly they put in accommodations to make it user-friendly for a wide variety so you have the basically the ground floor there is a grand entrance and staircase think similar to like a place like grand central station the really classic railroad stations there are also two mortuaries so the mortuaries are actually built into the archways that are underneath the bridges Um, To me, this is clever because they're using what would essentially be otherwise unused space. So these arches of the viaduct that cross the river, they're already kind of like natural recessed arches. They're cooler because they're closer to the ground. This is where they store bodies. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these are pauper burials, meaning that the family might not have even gone out for the burial, So a lot of these, or maybe unclaimed bodies, things pulled from the river and things like that. So a lot of the bodies that were going out there for pauper burials, nobody was coming with them. So they needed to be stored somewhere because obviously morgue space is limited. So there are two of these on the ground floor. There's also a coffin stock room, which I read an interesting interview from 1898 where they were talking to somebody who worked at the station. And they said, you know, don't the undertakers provide coffins? And they were talking about how if you had somebody die in a hotel you couldn't contact their family but they had to be buried you know the hotel owner might call and you'd bring a coffin to take care of it and then eventually you would get paid by the parish um so this is the ground floor um the first floor what we would call you know the second floor there's a boardroom which I think is great because this is both a utilitarian building meaning for the internal company And also being used for patrons who are patronizing this place. Um, This is where the funerary workshops are. I mean, again, I don't know if this is necessarily embalming. Building coffins. I didn't read a lot of details. But it seems like, you know, the nitty-gritty of running a mortuary was probably handled there. This is also where the second and third class waiting rooms were. And the main toilets for the building. So again, very modern all of the newest and fanciest accommodations. And then the top floor, first-class waiting rooms, and then they had their own toilets. Of course, you're paying for that privilege. This is also where the train shed was, because this is going to be the portion of the station that's level with the platform. A lot of the thoughtful details I thought were interesting, especially when you consider how elaborate, you know, Victorian funerary culture was, you know, the idea that They used glass ceilings and outside on the platform they had, you know, glass. That way no shadows fell and it was supposed to be uplifting and beautiful. This was a very well thought out building. They invested a lot of money in this. They had a projection that this was going to be the great wave of the future. So you boarded your train now in traditional funerals and anybody again that's been to a funeral the hearse usually goes first in this case the train cars that held coffins were generally in the back now these rail cars held between 12 and 14 bodies general practice was that if there was just a first class funeral the train would go however if there was just a single second class or third class burial they waited and you had to wait another day or two for the funeral until they had more bodies because they weren't going to run it for that low a price like the cemetery itself these hearse cars were supposed to be separated out by class and religion I doubt the crews who were manning these really cared. And so they didn't, this this practice really wasn't held to. But it's very funny because you can see a lot of really sort of stuffy Victorian commentary about, like I'm talking bishops and things like that, talking about, you know, we don't want these good Christian bodies mingling with the bodies of the heathens and whatnot. We don't want our good upper class citizens with the poor. Essentially, we talked about it a lot last week, with the Jewish episode, everybody's equal in death, and certainly these mortuary railroads, which were all about efficiency, proved that. Um, one of the reasons that inevitably the car was going to be in the back was the fact that the way that the branch line was designed, that there was not a turnaround, meaning that trains had to back in and out, which is the way that most a lot of stations are even today. Um, so if it wasn't on one end, it was on the other end. Now, at the other end, what did they see? So there were, like I said, two sections of the cemeteries, each had its own station. They were designed by um, Sydney Smirk, and they actually, again, opened right at the beginning of the cemetery. They're far simpler than what you see in London. They are single-story buildings, and they are just basically square kind of low squat buildings made of wood with the exception of the foundation, the chimney, and then the portions of the platform. They are lit by oil lamps. They are never electrified throughout their entire use. Now, inside, just as it was in the other station, you do have sectioned-off areas. So there's a central square courtyard, but... There's also, (laughs) and I think this is great, they call it the first class and then ordinary reception room. But I think they also realize that just in terms of volume, you're getting far more third class burials than anything else. So a year after the cemetery opens, they actually dig a cellar underneath, and that's where they put the third class waiting room. Now, there is also a refreshment room. And because I knew you were going to ask, yes, they were licensed to sell alcohol. And yes, while the funerals were going on, because they would leave the waiting room, if they were having any kind of services in the chapels, they would go up the cha- up to the chapel, which was on the hill above the station. What would the train crew do? But sit there and have a drink while they waited. And at least on one occasion, January 12th, 1867, The train driver was so drunk that he could not drive back, and so the assigned fireman who was there to take control of the coal just in case it caught on fire in a bad way had to drive the train back to London. After that point, the London Necropolis National Mausoleum Company made a deal with their train crews. We will give you free lunch on the condition that you only have one pint of beer. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Just a little bit of levity, you know. We're a cemetery podcast, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. So this whole system works pretty well. Now, one of the questions you might be considering is, you know, who is using this? Like I said, obviously third class burials are the most common, but you have a really wide range. Also. As things start to progress and as cultural things change, the system also adapts with it, which I think is one of the most interesting things. So in 1885, um, Woking Surrey gets a crematorium. Now, the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company desperately want a crematorium because they see this as being the wave of the future and they are very correct. In order to not have competition from somebody who already largely held the death monopoly in this part of the world, Wilking Crematorium, which again is a couple of miles from Brookwood, makes a deal where a lot of their bodies will be transported by the railroad and then do the last part in a cart. This also provides an excellent opportunity for the London necropolis to kind of get in on the cremation game without fully being in the game without the expense of building a crematorium the most significant example of this so we talked about the reception rooms these waiting rooms at this beautiful luxurious station in London I should say even though there is a first second and third class like if you I, there are no surviving pictures but just from the descriptions I've read They actually were very close in design. They were all fairly luxurious places to wait, I think because they were really trying to sell this to people. But these waiting rooms, of which there were multiple, could also double as chapels or as reception rooms for people who wanted to have a funeral in London, who for whatever reason couldn't go out to the cemetery, weren't planning to go to the cemetery. Perhaps the most famous individual who did this was actually Frederick Engels, who you are probably most familiar with as being the co-author of the Communist Manifesto along with Karl Marx. So Engel's funeral on August tenth, 1895 was actually held at the Necropolis Railroad Station in London. And it was held in one of the bigger reception rooms, had 150 people in attendance, because he had requested that his body be cremated. So his body was transported from London Necropolis to the Woking Crematorium, then eventually a smaller group left Went with his body. Once he was cremated, they took his remains and they were eventually scattered at sea. But to me, it's very interesting that even significant... I mean, Engels was fairly famous even in his lifetime. were having their funerals in a train station. Again, this is one of those really weird things that nobody talks about today, but at one point were, was fairly common. You might ask, who else rode the Mortuary Railroad? Well, a gentleman named um, Charles Bradlaugh, who was a member of parliament from Northampton, was a huge advocate of self-government for India. And he had something like 5,000 attend his funeral. It required 17 carriages in his funeral train to Brookwood. Among the riders, a 21-year-old Gandhi. That's right. Gandhi rode the mortuary Railroad to Brookwood. And uh, in his letters, he actually describes a very interesting argument that happened between an Anglican clergyman and an ardent nonconformist on the platform, on the north platform, where they stood there and proceeded to argue about their different religious beliefs. So just to give you an idea of how common this was and how central a cultural touchstone this was in England. Now. We do start to see a decline. And it happens for a number of reasons. Um, So in 1902, you have the second Necropolis Railroad Station that's opened. This happens mainly because Waterloo Station is expanding and needs to grow. So they essentially tear down the first station and they move the London Necropolis Station over. And the second location is actually really convenient because it is located in an area where the majority of funeral homes are. So it's a smart business move. They're closer. They can handle the same group. They are able to get more business in terms of foot traffic. And if you see photographs of the London Necropolis Railroad Station today, it is the 1902 one. Um, I do have some pictures. I'll definitely put them up. Um... This one was a little bit more separated because it essentially had a whole office building and then it had like the functional railroad station side of the building. It was designed by Cyril Bassett Tubbs, who is really the architect with one of the funniest names I've heard in a while. Perhaps the most noteworthy feature was that there was what was known as a chapelle ardente, um, which comes to the French. And... The Ardent part comes from the idea that there were candles. And so This was a fabulous oak-paneled room where one could essentially lie in state and had dozens of candles burning all around him. If you look up Chappelle Ardent, it was a trend a lot of times for really significant members of society where essentially they kept candles burning around their coffin, all of those things. Again, it's a leader of state type idea. There is a shift... They stop running the train on Sundays around this time. Essentially, culture is just changing, but it continues through the second, uh, through the First World War. You know, lots of burials of soldiers and things like that. Um, unfortunately, you cannot see London Necropolis today, and that's because um, at 10:30 at night on April 16th, 1941. The central section of the terminal, um, including the chapel, the workrooms, the waiting rooms, and the drive, were all destroyed during the Blitz. Unfortunately, this is actually the last major air raid of the Blitz. Um, so the German bombing of London in World War Two, uh, you know, obviously devastating. I know you've seen pictures of this. Every kid who ever read the Chronicles of Narnia knows that that's why the Pevensey children were sent out of London. I mean, it's a devastating loss. Um, Portions of it, especially the office building, were still intact after the bombing. The platform itself was intact, but badly damaged. I have a picture of the bombing damage. Um, And when the divisional engineer was sent out there to assess it, he... Literally all he wrote in his notebook for that day was necropolis and buildings demolished. The last funeral train to run out of necropolis was about a week before on April 11th. Um, It was officially closed May 11th, and that was the last train to ever run to necropolis. Now, there was a separate railroad station that had been built in the town of Brookwood... Um, And so, funeral trains did continue to go there, but this was no longer that dedicated London Necropolis Railroad. Now, the office building is still there today. You can see it. Unfortunately, the archway that said Necropolis has been covered up, but it's still there. So, a portion of this does survive. Um, Unfortunately, both of the stations at Brookwood are no longer in place. Um, they essentially were abandoned and they kind of just fell into disrepair over the years. Um, They did use them kind of as like snack stands for a long time. I don't know if they were still selling alcohol at that point. But uh, they too eventually kind of declined. I know that part of the ruins of the North Station are still there, but they are very overgrown. Brookwood, unfortunately, suffered the fate of many cemeteries where it just... It really was neglected, particularly through like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it has come back some, but it's still being such a large piece of land is not in great shape. So how did the whole plan work? You know, that projection of 28 million burials, 50,000 people a year. Well, I hate to trash Sir Richard Braun and Richard Spryer, but it didn't really work out that way. So in the 87 years that the Necropolis Railroad was in use, 203,041 burials were conducted, which works out to about 2300 per year, which is nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of burials. Obviously, if you were to break it down, there are probably more burials in the earlier years less going towards the 40s, but 2,300 bodies a year is still quite a few. In terms of an actual, you know, volume and things like that, I would say that they actually did pretty well. Nobody is going to necessarily choose one cemetery, and I think that that's what they failed to take into account, was that people needed choices. And with the rise of cremation, overall... I think that towards the end, popularity just shifted. And by the 40s, most people have cars. And that's exactly it. The automobile killed trains. No matter where you are in the world, by the 1950s, the heyday of train travel is over. Here in the United States, the last Union terminal that was built was in 1959, and that was in New Orleans, mainly because they didn't really have an airport. But I think the fact is, if you do the math... They were transporting about six bodies a day out to Brookwood. And any cemetery that's handling six, six burials a day, that, that's a pretty busy cemetery, especially in that era. Plus, I think more so than anything else, you can say that the Necropolis Railroad really set a global precedence. And I'm going to talk about that just a little bit in terms of what did they inspire, where did things go from there. First of all, in England, there were a couple of other mortuary railroads um, not as well known. Um, West Norwood had a railway station very near to it. The South London Metropolitan Cemetery also has special design at its station where there are specific side gates that pallbearers could access. And you can still see these today as far as I know. The big change happens in 1947 when nationalization of railroads starts to require that coffins be carried separate from the rest of the cargo. And this proves to be a very expensive alternative, having to have additional cars in order to carry bodies. And this really cuts down on the amount of people willing to use trains, unless for, you know, state occasions and other things like that. Um The last specific railroad funeral was actually in 1979, um, and that was Lord Mountbatten. And then lastly, in 1988, the National Rail said that they would no longer carry coffins at all. So the true end of the era for English mortuary railroads in any form is 1988. But that being said, you do still have a lot of noteworthy people. I mean, almost all royal funerals are still funeral trains. Queen Victoria, Edward VII, and George VI all um, were carried on the Windsor and Eaton Railroad um, to Frogmore Mausoleum, where they're buried near Windsor Castle. Um, the only prime minister I know of is Winston Churchill, which, of course, he kind of breaks the rules and um, he rode the Southern Railway Battle of Britain car um, from Waterloo, obviously, right next to the old Necropolis station. Um, to Handborough which is close to Blenheim Palace where he was born and close to the churchyard where he's buried. So there are still a few instances but obviously after the 40s there is an almost total decline in in railroad funerals and it just goes away. The technology changes and automobiles become king. Now other countries do start to emulate this though and I'm going to start with Obviously the closest related and probably most significant example. And that's going to be Australia. So Australia forms not Brookwood, but Rookwood Cemetery um, or the Rookwood Necropolis. Um, And the interesting thing about the Rookwood Necropolis is it is still the largest cemetery in the southern hemisphere. Uh, I have been there. I wandered for probably four or five hours, and I didn't come close to seeing everything. It exists on a scale I really can't compare to anything else. I know that I rode the Suburban Rail line out there, and when I got off at the station, it told me that I still had to walk a mile from the station to get to the cemetery, Luckily, I realized it was taking me to the cemetery office, which is inside the main gate. Um, I only had to walk maybe two or three blocks to get to a side gate, which went into the Roman Catholic section. But still, um, (laughs) just staggeringly large. Um, So Rookwood is about 15 kilometers outside of central Sydney. Again, this is a very similar story where there's a push to move burials out of the city they find land that is cheap they find land that is abundant and they are going to take advantage of this and they are going to push these burials out there but they need a way for people to be able to get out there and more importantly for bodies to get out there and this is going to be something that's going to be emulated um faulkner cemetery and station which is actually going to be south of sydney Springvale Necropolis in Melbourne like so this is going to be something that definitely they take lessons from Brookwood in this Commonwealth country that is not that far away and they take it into account Um, similarly here there is a central station which is today known as Regent Street this one is still here and it is frankly magnificent I didn't get a chance to see it up close, but I did see it from a train. We stopped not far from there because it's right next to the Central Railroad Station in Sydney. Um, and I know Hostelling International actually has a hostel not too far from there. That's not the one I stayed at. I stayed at the one in Circular Quay, um, which is beautiful. If you are ever traveling in Australia on a budget, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I know not everybody really loves staying in hostels. Uh, but I tend to travel cheaply, that's the only way I do it 360 degree views of the harbor uh, if you had stayed at the hotel next door you probably would have been paying $450 a night uh, and for you know less than $30 a night I was staying there with the same view um, if you don't mind sharing a room with other people it's a pretty good deal um, and they had wine and cheese every night free wine and cheese up on the on the rooftop overlooking Sydney Harbor hard to beat I'm not getting sponsored by Hostelling International or anything, but if we can ever travel again, it's a pretty good tip. So anyway, so Regent Street Station is opened in 1869. Um, It is just, it's a magnificent building. It really is. Um, It is designed by an architect named John Barnett, who really, he designs the stations at both ends, and... In terms of prolific architects in history, I don't think you can get much better than John Barnett. He designed 130 courthouses, 155 police stations, 110 jails, and 20 lighthouses. That's to say nothing of residential or other things like train stations and whatnot. That's just a volume that's just staggering. And beautiful, Victorian, eclectic, high Gothic with carvings. These are these stations are both built of sandstone. Th- these are just some of the prettiest buildings you'll ever see. Um, so he builds both the Regent Street, as it's known today, but it originally was known as the Mortuary Station. It's known as Necropolis Receiving sometimes. Um, and then at the other end of the line... You actually have not one, not two, but three, four stations within Rookwood Cemetery. Rookwood, like Brookwood in England, is separated out by sections. So they have a Roman Catholic section. They have an Anglican section. They have a Wesleyan section. They have a Jewish section. One of the interesting things even today about Rookwood is that, I mean, they have a Greek Orthodox section. Anything that you can imagine. Really, really, really interesting. Um... So station number one is the famous one, and this is, it's interesting to me because I did read that station number two was the Roman Catholic station. Station number one is literally right across from the Roman Catholic section, so I'm not sure why they had a second one. I guess maybe for convenience. Um, The Chapel of St. Michael the Archangel is, like, across the road from where station number one was. Um. Station number one, built in 1865, stayed there until 1958. Uh, It was discontinued about a decade before in the late 40s, um, and then just sat empty. And again, this is a luxurious building. Beautiful, resembles a church because it has a little belfry where they would ring the bell to give a warning so that people, the train would go out in the morning and come back in the afternoon. That way people didn't miss the train back to Sydney. Um, It had double platforms. It had multiple vestibules. It had a retiring room inside. It had a ticket counter inside. Really, again, I have pictures of both of these stations. I will definitely put them up. They are something to see. So it sat empty for about 10 years, fell into disuse, at which point it was sold for 100 pounds to a minister from the newly formed state of Canberra, Canberra is, that's always a great trick question. Ask people what the capital of Australia is. They never know. So to this, the Australian national territory where the capital is, um, where now it sits in a suburb as All Saints Church. So you can actually still see this. You just cannot see it in its original location and they definitely modified it um, so the huge archway where the trains used to go through is now a big glass window. They actually flipped the belfry. was originally on the left-hand side. Now it's on the right. But it's still recognizably the same building. Um, so I give them credit. They stacked up all this sandstone and they transported it, you know, a couple hundred miles away. Really good adaptive reuse. Now... The other stations, which I have pictures of those as well, far less elaborate, um, would, in the case of numbers two and four, number three, used some of the same materials as number one, but still far less elaborate. But again, these were all about serving different populations, whether it's the Catholics or the Jewish, all of them were different stops along the mortuary railroad and you can still see where the tracks were and one of the interesting things about station number one even though it's no longer there there was a big push in the early 2000s to memorialize it and so they now have it's kind of a sad ugly memorial but you can see the original proportions of it it's in sort of an open area and they have kind of laid out the dimensions I have pictures of this I can post um To give you an idea of what it originally did look like. Um, And the only surviving part. Is that there's a little utility shed. Off on the left hand side. And that is still there. Um, Like I said. The Regent Street Station is still there. However. uh, It was closed in uh, 1938. About 10 years before. The railroad stopped running in 48. And. And they shifted the last funeral trains over to like the main railroad station and they used it for animals, for horses and things like that. It was sort of a stable. And then in the mid eighties it became a National Trust property and they sought it to restore it. And in I, I have to say this might be the weirdest flex we've ever had on Tomb with a view. In nineteen eighty six it became a pancake restaurant by the name of, wait for it, The Magic Mortuary. So for three years, in central Sydney, Australia, there was a pancake restaurant run out of old train cars in a mortuary station called The Magic Mortuary. I am only too sorry that I was far too young to enjoy it because you know, if that still existed today, I would have pictures of it, and I would have eaten pancakes there. But sadly, we can't mourn too deeply for what will no longer be. Rookwood is its an experience, no matter how you try to slice it. Um, but almost perfectly modeled on what was this very, very established practice that was already going on for... I mean, in terms of time frame, only about a decade. You know, it's about 10, 12 years in between when this happens in England, when this happens in Australia. So definitely, this is a pretty quick transition. You're not seeing this 50, 60, 100 years later. But of course, Australia is still very closely tied with England at this point. Now, it's not just the Commonwealth countries that are doing this, though. Malmi Cemetery in Helsinki has a line which runs through 1954. Then you have the Friedhofsbahn um, in Germany, which this one's really interesting. It runs considerably later. Um, so it isn't founded until 1913. Um, and it runs from berlin Wannsee Station um, to Stansdorf's Forest Cemetery. Again, it's a similar distance. It's about 20 kilometers um it same model where it has both passenger carriages and funeral carriages same issue in terms of trying to move the dead out of the city center. Um they end their funeral trains in 52 so it's it's a relatively short run railroad um only about 40 years. Um but the interesting thing is is that the tracks are kind of maintained and even though they don't run regular funeral services, what eventually puts an end to it is in 1961 with the construction of the Berlin Wall because this particular train went from east to west. And so what eventually happened is that on depending on whether you're in the former East Berlin or former West Berlin, you can actually still see chunks of this railroad because the tracks were never pulled up. Unlike most of these places where the tracks were repurposed, here in Germany and there's tons of this lots of urban explorers online who look into these so the the remains of the Friedhof in Germany are actually still there all completely overgrown I'm seeing that I am at about an hour so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to make the split second decision to separate this out into two episodes So I've given you the basics. I've told you the story of the London necropolis and how that was expanded out into a trend that really kind of crisscrossed Europe and the colonial empire of England. Next week, what I'm going to look at is I'm going to look at the United States because in the United States, it doesn't happen the same way. However, in the end, I think that the United States maybe had the greatest mortuary railroad. And again, it's a story that you've probably never heard. As always, thank you for your reviews and ratings. Uh, If you have not done so, please go online and do that. I wish I knew why. That's the biggest thing that matters on iTunes. It's not number of downloads. Um... I know it takes a couple seconds to log in, but if you do have the time to do that, please, it does help, makes me more visible, makes people be able to find me. Believe it or not, if you search for cemeteries, I'm not the first thing that comes up, which is disappointing, even though we're we're really one of only a handful of podcasts that ever address cemeteries. Also, follow along on social media. This past week, I did share quite a bit. Um, apologies to Congregation Mikveh Israel for my typo, where... It ended up as Mickey Israel, um, who sounds like a kid that plays for the, you know, the local Jewish rec league baseball team. Um, I corrected my typo later on and thank you for calling me out on that. Lots of good stuff. I also have good pictures this week. This week, again, it's going to be more historical stuff, but lots of cool maps and things like that. You'll get an idea of what these things looked like. So please, um... On Facebook, we are Tomb with the View Podcast, and on Instagram, Tomb Period with Period A Period View. If you need to get a hold of me, you can always do that through Tomb of the View Podcast at gmail.com. Next week, we will continue with American Mortuary Railroads. Keep riding the train. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.